Let the celebration begin. Come to Cabela's 4th of July sale and gear up for Independence Day. Get 50% off Cabela's American Flag Chairs 2-Pack and 50% off a Caravan 10-foot by 10-foot shelter. Plus, get 40% off an Abu Garcia Cardinal Sapphire Spinning Combo and 10% off all in-stock canoes and kayaks. Don't miss Cabela's 4th of July sale, in-store and online at cabelas.com. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Danny LaRue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. I wanted to do something on the deadlines that just happened for both rookie extensions and also the options for rookie contracts, and the best person to have on is Dan Feldman. He's an NBC Pro Basketball Talk writer. He's a, a CBA nerd like I am, and so we start talking about extensions mostly, and you know the ones that happened, the ones that didn't, and then we move into options, and then we had a conversation also on the draft and the D-League, which is something else that relates to all this, and thinking about how all of these pieces are moving together. The whole conversation runs about an hour and 15 minutes, and I think you'll really enjoy it. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. It's weird that it wasn't a Halloween deadline, but it ended up being November 2nd. Wanted to have you on to really talk about it. And there are a couple different avenues, and I wanted to kind of let you have the choice of what you thought was the most notable story moving out of the extension and option deadline. Well, I think the most notable thing was the lack of extensions for some top players like Bradley Beal, Andre Drummond. Uh, maybe even you throw Harrison Barnes into this mix where their cap hold will be lower than surely the extension they could have commanded and teams are trying to leverage that extra cap space. I think that was always something teams could do. Sometimes it used to not matter because teams wouldn't have cap space either way. Now everybody is going to have cap space. And the difference is higher because rookie scale contracts are still tied you know, to this old notion of, of how money works in the NBA. And now these max contracts are going to be tied to this new TV deal money. And so the difference between a cap hold and the starting salary of an extension is bigger than it's ever been. So you combine those two and teams have more incentive to wait, especially if the players are open to it. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. And maybe the best example of this is actually one that we aren't talking about as much, which is the Rockets. And so the Rockets have Terrence Jones and Donatas Monteunas Demo. And their combined cap holds, because they were both kind of later first-round picks, their combined cap holds for next year are a little under $12 million. Depending on how things go for them, you know, that could be the salary for one of them. And so while the Rockets are not the most likely team to need or use that cap space, you can see why they would have an interest in that. Exactly. I, you know, if, if I'm Houston, I'm looking at those two players, and if they're willing to take a a substantial discount over the life of a, a four-year contract, yeah, sure, I'll sacrifice some of that flexibility, especially because, like you said, they might not need the cap space next summer, but they have to take that discount. I'm I'm incentivized to not extend them. And you can also see that one of the differences between this year, and you talked about this a little bit, and other years, is that a lot of the guys who weren't extended are teams that 
could potentially be players in the free agent market next year. And so for them, while there is some risk, there are two, there are kind of two different branches of risk from the team for waiting. One is that they, um, that the player signs a qualifying offer, which is extremely unlikely, but possible. And the second one is that they sign a less team friendly deal, like what let's say Gordon Hayward did. So Gordon Hayward signed a three plus one, where I'm sure right now at the current prices, the Jazz would love to have him on a four or five year deal. So they, they have both those risks. But when you compare that to the potential benefit of, let's say like the Pist- the Pistons are the team you're closest with of these of this group, of having $10 million or so to work with, I, I can understand why they're willing to take that, take that chance. Right. And, and I think the key from Detroit's perspective, and I don't know this, but I, I think this differentiates the Pistons from the Wizards. All indications are Andre Drummond's on board with this plan. Uh, the Pistons owner has called him a max player in public, and that's going back a, a year. They've made it very clear to him what they think of him and how they've built their roster. And it's clear he's the guy and they believe in him. And I think the Wizards believe in Bradley Beal. The way I'd put the key difference is I think if Drummond wanted to sign the extension right now or last week, he could have. I don't think Beal could have. I don't think the Wizards were willing to eat into their cap space to give him that max offer and and maybe not take them out of the running for Kevin Durant, but at least hurt their maneuverability for Kevin Durant. Because I think they believe that correctly they can get Beal to come around when they give him a max offer next summer. Yeah, and something else that mitigates the risk to a point is that player there isn't any any issue with signing guys to a five year contract when they've been a restricted free agent. You don't have that whole designated player drama, which is very convenient for a lot of these teams. And also one of one of the lessons I, I guess you could say that we learned from from the summer, from July, is that players are a lot more comfortable taking that long term deal. So while you could argue that Andre Drummond would be wise to take a two plus one or even a three plus one. The the immediate precedent of guys that maybe aren't his level of player but are you know young and talented, like if you want to say Chris Middleton, those guys took five year deals. And so while so I think that the Pistons can be a little bit less scared that he would do something like that, which would have some negative impact on them. I know you disagree with me a little bit, but if he's the type of guy who really hasn't had his monster contract yet and could get $120 million guaranteed if he wanted it and is accepting zero guaranteed to help the team, maybe he's also the type of guy who would take the chance on on a 2-plus-1 or a 3-plus-1. Yeah, well, and in his case, they're definitely going to give him, assuming everything goes goes the way, they'll give him the max qualifying offer, which takes the um, that takes the 2-plus-1 off the table entirely. Well, the issue with the max qualifying offer, and this is something the league, I think, might have to address more than it has, will that raise a player's cap hold immediately to the max number? Oh, you're right, because there still hasn't been a clear resolution on that, has there? It's my understanding that the league interprets it to raise it. Uh, the way I'd read the collective, collective bargaining agreement is different. Uh, Nate Duncan brought this up to me, that uh, the way that it's written, a max qualifying offer and a qualifying offer are two distinct things. A max qualifying offer is not a type of qualifying offer technically. At least that's how we both read it. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I don't know if the league has been challenged on this. Uh, There wasn't really an opportunity to. The Spurs didn't need to extend the, the max qualifying offer last summer to Kawhi Leonard because they clearly believed he wasn't going to leave them, and they were correct. Uh, The Bulls 
did extend it to Jimmy Butler, but they wouldn't have had cap space anyway. And, you know, who knows if they challenged it on the chance that they would have cap space. But this could be a big deal for the Pistons, for the Wizards. We'll see if the league gets challenged on it and, and if that interpretation gets changed. Yeah, something that relates to that is what, I recently wrote a piece for the Sporting News, and something that I've been thinking about with this group is that since there's a super long moratorium, which is something that uh, a lot of people became more familiar with with DeAndre Jordan, is the moratorium is going to be 11 days next year, which when you couple that with the fact that for the three days that, assuming a guy didn't play ball and signed an offer sheet with another team, that a, a team has for that, they have two full weeks to make use of the cap space before. So even if a player like Andre Drummond didn't play ball, as long as the Pistons had their ducks in a row, they could still do it. The, the real fun question would be how they would do that in terms of timing the max qualifying offer. But the point, the larger point is still there, which is that even if a player doesn't play ball with the team concept like Kawhi Leonard did, like Danny Green did, with restricted free agents, that three-day window gives them the space to kind of get their work done anyway. Well, correct me if I'm wrong. Wouldn't the max qualifying offer have to come out by June 30th? I'm not sure. You would probably you know this better than I do. The max qualifying offer is one of those nuances that I didn't get in the weeds on last year. If I'm not mistaken, don't hold okay. me to that. So that could be a separate issue, but just generally that the fact that you can get two weeks to do all these negotiations and handle all your stuff before you have to make a a binding decision is is really helpful. Right. And so I, I guess the big leverage a team like the Pistons would have over a player like Drummond is even if he didn't want it, you know, if he wanted that shorter contract and the Pistons weren't willing to give it to him, so he had to get it through an offer sheet, I think he would realize that, okay, there's no point of trying to beat them to the minute after the moratorium ends. The Pistons are going to match, so you as might as well let them get the better player signed first before you do it. It's not like the Pistons aren't going to match. I, I guess it would be kind of fuzzy when you get a player who's not sure whether his team would match. Yeah, in those kinds of circumstances, that would that would be the stickier one. And having such a long moratorium does mean that I think teams can have a more cogent idea of what their battle plan is before, because I fully expect that we'll see the big names will be long gone by then. So that means you could have, like, basically you could have more like this year where all the pieces were already in place before the moratorium ended. I, I guess the one potential twist on this, and I, I don't think it's too late, but I guess you could argue it is, is after DeAndre Jordan, there was a lot of talk about reducing or eliminating the moratorium. That could still be a change that happens. Yeah, it could be. I, I think uh, I'm pretty sure that would have to be collectively bargained, but they could do that. And that actually, there's a small subtopic that I would, I do want to talk to you about. I don't think we've ever discussed this, and I think Tom Ziller deserves credit for bringing it up the first time, which is. My big issue with the moratorium is not that it exists, though I do think it is too long right now. It's that teams don't know what the cap's going to be. And they could fix that by just changing the auditing period to the last week of June as opposed to the moratorium. Just a little bookkeeping thing to make the year end the year earlier. And for me, I think that makes it a lot more fair because then you don't have these teams negotiating in the blind to a degree, like even the Spurs did, where the Spurs could have done a couple of small things differently if they knew that the cap was going to jump a little bit over the expectation. I generally agree with that, and that I think that's the solution I favor most, but to partially play devil's advocate, here's the issue with it. What do you do about the revenue generated during that last week of June? You count it in the next year, the subsequent year. Okay, and I'm fine with that. I don't the think small there's... drawback is then it's a every year is a different group of players, and then you have different players being affected 
by the revenue of the generation one year prior. Now, for the most part, there's going to be a lot of overlapping players. I don't think it's a huge deal. But it is not quite ideal. I think it's better than the current setup, and I don't think there's a perfect solution. But I, but I do think the players that are playing at the time should should get the rewards of the revenue they generate. Yeah, I, I think there's definitely some truth to that. At the same point, I don't know how much revenue is generated in a time where there are no games. You know, there there isn't there isn't an, enough really going on during that six day period, seven day period, what however long the audit needs to be, that you're sitting there going, oh my god, you know, it's not like they're missing, fi- it's not like there are finals games in that stretch or anything like that. I don't know how much money championship uh, merchandise produces. I don't know if it's enough to move the needle at all. Yeah. Yeah, and it would have to be the relative difference. I mean, because because that money that money would go in, it just would go in a different year. But yeah, it's it's one of those one of those kind of nuancey things. But yeah, the, what I like so much about this group and the delays is that there are so many options available in now in the summer of 2016 for these teams. And so that isn't to say you know that oh you know the Warriors are going to get Kevin Durant or the Pistons are going to get you know Bob Horford or whatever, but now the players who are both restricted and unrestricted have even more potential suitors out there, which just makes it exciting for me. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. I mean, it, it was an exciting summer regardless. It was stacking up to be that way, but now there's there's a lot more in play. Are you thinking just on your on instinct that the the Pistons, because they're theoretically they're getting about ten million extra to work with? Would your guess be that that would go towards kind of a single player, or that they just try to improve their depth? Because one of their issues we saw this last night when they played the Pacers is just the lack of the lack of you know guys one to ten partially due to injury. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure they know. Al Horford would be a, a great complement to Drummond offensively and defensively. Uh, I think that'd be. An excellent guy. I, I think generally teams are smart to go for, for one player. It is a stars league. Uh, if you can get the best player, that's great. Uh, the Pistons probably do need a little help in their bench. I think the beauty of it is they have this money. They have this flexibility. Uh, they've shown they're not afraid to trade for a player if they can't get the free agent they want uh, and accept somebody into their cap room. So it, I think it's just more about, you know, see how this year plays out, see what they need, see how ready Stanley Johnson looks a year from now and, They'll have the extra money to, to use however they want. Yeah, that's definitely a good way of thinking about it. And that ties in with something that I ha- that I think is going to be a lingering storyline next year, which is that I think there, I like to think of the cap as a little bit more of a collective than as individual team space. And because one of the, one of the things that I think will be different about next year is that depending on who wants to go where, we could see talented players on reasonable contracts be moved to clear space, which is very different from like what the Warriors did to get Iguodala, where they just basically dumped Flotsam to get the space to sign him. We could just see, you know, like, hey, we like X player, but we can get Y player who maybe costs five to ten million more and we like them better. So, hey, let's see what the market is for to get Warriors fans riled up. Andrew Bogut. I think those moves are going to happen because players don't have the ability to stop those trades. I mean, we we saw that last summer, right, with uh, Splitter, Tiago Splitter, and, exactly. and Marcus Aldridge. That's we, yeah. I think I, that's a good point. And I think it's going to happen not just with guys towards the end of their contracts. I think it could happen early. Like the, the the term that I've used for a couple of years now, I call it the Nene test because the idea with that was basically that they um, 
That was Masai, yeah. Masai Ujiri signed Nene to an extension, it appears, with the idea of kind of always having him as a trade asset. And basically every guy that signed last summer is in that mold. You know, every guy, almost every player that signed in, in July of 2015 will be, when the year turns over and teams are spending money like drunk sailors, their contract is going to look pretty good. Yeah, absolutely. It's There's going to be a, a real value on anybody who signed before the cap went up. And, and the teams that I think have locked guys into this, these long-term contracts already are going to be at a real advantage uh, because everybody you have making less, it's more money you can overspend on somebody else or, like you said, use those as trade assets for, for teams that want underpaid players. And that's also why DeMarcus Cousins is such a crazy value because his contract pretty much runs through the spike. So while uh, things will be fa- things will be high later on because of all the revenue, eventually the cap will stabilize. And once it stabilizes, then that changes the relative value. It's it's basically teams that spend money during this period before the before it stabilizes that are going to have the advantage. And if you can get a guy like that who's a clearly great player and he's cost controlled through that period, that's even better than some of the other values out there. Right now, all you need is a a competent management team to take advantage of that and surround him with good players. If only. And that's also why Anthony Davis is going to be such a nice value. He's having a little bit of a disappointing start to a season. and Him being locked in for such a long time, for the next five years, and then having a player option at a ludicrously high number of, I think it's it's the 32 million? Um, his, his player option, yeah, thir- but 32.6 million player option if he if he qualifies for the Rose Roll. But he, you get that stability with him too. The difference the difference is that he's getting it. He's not being paid the low wage that Demarcus Cousins is. Right. <laughs> Do you want to talk about the Rose Rule at all? This is actually a kind of a lingering subplot of these a couple guys in this class. Sure, I think it applies to uh, two guys, and we could really stretch it to three if we wanted to. Uh, essentially. When a player signs a quote-unquote max contract extension, he's locked in at a number that's based on 25% of the salary cap for the first year of the extension. So for for players this year, the two guys who got max deals, uh, Anthony Davis and Damian Lillard, uh, they will make a max salary for the 2016-2017 season. Uh, we don't know what a max salary is going to be, except for it's for players in their experience level, zero to six years, it's going to be 25% of the cap approximately. It's a set number. So it's going to work out to about $120 million, except if they trigger the Derrick Rose rule, which means during their first four years in the league, they did one of three things. Uh, number one could be win the MVP. Number two, be voted an all-star starter twice. Or number three, be voted to an all-NBA first, second, or third team twice. Uh, I think Anthony Davis is pretty much a lock to trigger it. Uh, he could win MVP. He, he All he needs is either one all-star start or one all-NBA selection. Uh, slow start notwithstanding, I think he'll get at least one of those, maybe even all three. Uh, Damian Lillard either needs to win MVP or, m- obviously much more likely, make one all-NBA team. He's got a shot. Uh, he's had a little bit of a rocky start himself, uh, but he could make an all-NBA third team. He's at least in the running. He's done that once before. Uh, the third player who could, I guess if you want to get crazy about it, who could get in there is Andre Drummond. Uh, he did not sign an extension, but if he wins MVP this season, he would be eligible for the higher max next season. 
Yeah, so I think what what's, so what people are doing, and I think this is fair, is they're treating the Rose Rule as done for Anthony Davis, that it's going to happen, and as not likely for Damian Lillard. But what's kind of funny about it is also that that what makes the Rose Rule different than a lot of other parts of this is that the team and player can negotiate as a part of the extension, can negotiate uh, that they can make all or a portion of that money. And that's actually how... Paul George got his player option was so Paul George basically agreed that if he qualified for the Rose Rule, he wasn't going to take the full max. And he did that and kind of whether it was an exchange or whatever, that's kind of the way people have thought about it. He got a player option on the last year. What's interesting is Damian Lillard also settled for twenty seven and a half percent, but he did not get the player option. Right. Which, you know, look, it's a great contract for Lillard and he's going to make a lot of money and he's he's worth it. I don't know why he made any concessions. If he told Portland, I want 30%, are they going to say no? Are they not going to extend him? I mean, he agreed early July, if I remember right. Take your time. Make them sweat a little bit. You can always agree to that contract later. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I, I think that it's it's a challenge for these players and teams because something we saw with, with those players and we saw in, in the whole summer is, you know, it's it's hard to leave that much money on the table. But at the same time, as you said with Lillard, like, what were they going to do? They didn't really have a counter. He, or if right. he, if he earns it, he earns it. I mean, and they could just, and at, at a certain point, what you could say if you're them is, you know, like, hey, if you earn it, that's awesome. You know, that's going to, that's going to be mean that, that not only probably just based on how players get all NBA consideration, not only did you do really well, but probably we did pretty well because you don't usually see players on 30 win teams make an all NBA team. No, usually not, but a, a player like Lillard could be the exception if, you know, if he starts putting up monster numbers, uh, and the Trailblazers have the down year most of us expected them to have. Yeah, voters might say, well, we know he's capable of playing well on a good team. He's already proven that. So we're not going to ding him too much, uh, for putting up bigger numbers on a bad team. It's, it's the guys who you don't know whether they can play well on a good team. A guy like, you know, Kevin Love, that's where voters get real queasy about it. Yeah, that, that's a good point. We've handled the Max guys pretty well, but there were actually, uh, there were five other extensions that we should talk about, and I think might as well talk about the, both of the Hornets guys first, and so Michael K. Gilchrist was early on with the extension, and so he signed for four years, but the fourth year is a player option, and there were a couple interesting things with him, but the, I think the most notable is that he signed at a number that was very close to his cap hold. Yeah, and that's great for, for the Hornets to be able to get him that low, even with his injury. I, I think it's a fantastic value for them. Yeah, because, I mean, while he has issues offensively, he's a very talented defender. It seems like he's versatile on that end, too. You can see it if if you trust on-off numbers. You can see it with that, but, I mean, you can just see when you when you watch him. And so to get him at a flat $13 million a year with a... Third, with a player option on the fourth year, I think that's an incredible value for them considering what teams might be spending for players like that next summer. He's also very young for his experience level. I haven't given up on his offense. I yeah. especially think if he were in a in, on a team with uh, better passers, better offensive threats around him, I think he could be a really good complementary offensive player uh, with his ability to cut, with his ability to get out on the fast break. So I, I think he hasn't really been unleashed on that end. His jumper is obviously a problem, uh, but I don't think it's one a, a good team couldn't overcome. 
I like to think of him offensively as a bouncy power forward. So the idea mm-hmm. being that, so you, you think about what you want to pair around him. So that means what you'd want around him offensively is actually probably closer to a three, you know, a guy who has a jump shot and maybe can handle the ball a little bit. And that might actually end up being the case because in certain circumstances, you might actually defend MKG with the four, though I think his handle is, is okay enough that he can maybe make that work, which is the same thing I think Giannis is going to have to do. But he's so good defensively that it's worth it. I think he's a big part of the reason why they were able to succeed on that end despite not having a true rim protector, which is very unusual in the modern NBA. Absolutely, and he's a worker. His jump shot has made progress, not all the way out to the three-point arc, uh, but he's going in the right direction. I I wouldn't even give up on his jump shot. I I like a lot about him, uh, and I just think the Hornets got a fantastic deal. Yeah, and, and really, when you're as good as he is defensively, if he can add one thing offensively that he can do reliably that helps, I think that's enough. You know, I, I, he can do more than that. I have full faith that he can. But if you know whether that's a a set jump shot from like a set shot from like 16 feet or something, you know, whatever it can be, even that would be enough. Or if he shot a million free throws every day and just made sure that he that he could do that, but. We'll, we'll see, we'll see what it works with that, but then the, the maybe, I, I think arguably the most interesting extension was the guy that the Hornets ex- did so recently, and that's Jeremy Lamb, who they acquired for the, a trade exception, functionally, you know, they, they, they tra- acquired him for a trade exception, and then they extended him for three years, $21 million. Yeah, I was really surprised, uh, that he got extended. If I remember right, when we did our mock extension podcast, he wasn't even one of the guys we talked about. Because we didn't think it was. I, I don't even think. Enough. I don't even think he was included in the omissions. Like I think we just went, Matt. Yeah, I mean, for somebody who just, I like his talent. He just hadn't shown enough at the NBA level. Uh, but I do like Charlotte betting on him early. I think that makes sense, and he obviously rewarded them last night with a huge game, twenty points on nine of ten shooting. I mean, he maybe he's more confident now with the exception. Maybe it was just a, a one-time thing. Uh, but I think he definitely could be a solid player. Nobody argues about his talent. Uh, he just needs to put it together. My big question with this deal is just where this lies in terms of the potential financial outcomes for him for the summer. So I, I, I think that we talked about with with Michael Kikokos, like he was. It feels to me like he was almost definitely going to, even with the injury, he was going to get more money than he got, and that's a great time to do an extension because if you can lock that in for the player, they get a lot of money, and for the team, they get that security. Jeremy Lamb, I can certainly see scenarios where he gets either more years, more dollars, or both. It's certainly a possibility. But I think that's more more than like, let's say that's in the higher in the higher half for sure, but maybe like the 75% scenario for him. And that, for me, is when you don't want to necessarily do an extension, especially when you're Charlotte, and the risk isn't that high because you have match rights. I guess the counter to that is with Kid Gilchrist out, with having so little confidence in P.J. Harrison that you don't even pick up his, his third-year rookie skill option, which we can talk more about later, uh, Jeremy Lamb's going to get a chance to show what he can do. If, if you think he's looked good behind the scenes, everybody's going to figure it out by the end of this season. Uh, the, the issue I have more than that with the contract is why isn't it four years? If you're Charlotte and you're willing to give him $21 million guaranteed, uh, which he obviously accepted, and I'm not saying he would have gone for this. Uh, but if the Hornets could have pushed for a fourth unguaranteed year, so you really get value if this works out. And I would even be willing to raise the, the guaranteed dollar amount, I don't know, maybe something like $24 million over the first three years if it bought me a, a fourth year unguaranteed. 
Yeah, or or even if it was, because I, I, I mean, a team option is a lot better for a player than a non-guaranteed year just because of the leverage and because then they have more control over their destiny. But either way, that would be nice for Charlotte. And that's actually something that Boston probably did with Eurebko and Johnson that I think other teams should emulate because those non-guaranteed years are huge for teams. Yeah, and you could meet in the middle to do a non-guaranteed year uh, with a July 1 or June 30 uh, guarantee date, and that way the player doesn't miss out on free agency if that's where he's headed, uh, but you can still use him as a trade chip that offseason just to that's facilitate bigger deals. Yeah, I, I, that's that's a good way of putting it, and and they are going to be in a situation, as you said, with Jeremy Lamb, where he, he's going to get an opportunity to shine, and whether whether he does or not, and something that we lose sight of sometimes, though it's interesting that we're talking about this in the sense of a guy who they just acquired, is that there is a lot more than what we see that is a part of evaluating these players and seeing what they do, both their fit in the locker room, but also how they work in practice. And you can see that with players. I, I remember I heard last year a lot about how Festus Azili was looking so good in practices and all that. So you could, there's a lot that you can see that is outside of the public, outside of the public access, let's say. And it works both ways, and I'll bring this up more when we get to Terrence Ross. I, I think sometimes teams can overvalue that. I do think all of that is very important. You know, it's important a guy's a hard worker and, and you know, a good teammate and all that. But sometimes I think teams overvalue how easy it is to get along with a guy on a day-to-day basis when that doesn't necessarily matter on the court too much. It can matter, uh, and there are certain lines, and it's obviously such a gray area and we don't see a lot of it. Uh, but you might put too much stock into the fact that, hey, we have to deal with this guy every day. We want nice people to be around. Especially when there is a talent deficiency, because as as much as nice people are wonderful and they're good to be around, that's not what wins games in this league for the most part. You have to have talent, and if you have nice people, that's a bonus. And so Terrence Ross, we can go straight to it. I, my, I just don't think he was worth the money they gave him. You know, I just think it was too much money. Yeah, I agree, and I'd make the same case about if you're going to do it, really push for and maybe they did, really push for that fourth unguaranteed year so you get more upside for it. I think Terrence Ross is an okay player, but the big problem he has, he's not going to get a chance to show any progress he might have made this season. You know, he's buried behind DeRozan and and Damari Carroll. He's going to get playing time, obviously, but I don't think he was going to get enough to earn a contract like this. Yeah, my, my issue with Ross as a player is goes back to something that I've been thinking about back since I was in college, which for me is when I think about swingmen, so shooting guards, small forwards, there are two big attributes other than running an offense, which just a very few small group of guys can have, is one is can you be a lockdown defender? You know, Michael K. Gilchrist, I think, would go in that group, or can you be like a very talented defender either in the individual or team construct and or be a primary, like, scorer. So, you know, be the, be the guy who the ball goes into. Kevin Durant's probably the archetype for this. You know, the ball goes in his hands at, at the end of games. If you can do either of those things, you're incredibly valuable. You're going to be probably going to be a steal at a max contract, depending on, depending on how weak you are on the other end of the floor. I don't see Ross having the game in, in him to really fit either of those boxes, and those, to me, are the types of players that generally get overpaid. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Uh, the one other thing I'd say about Terrence Ross, I think if you look back at rookie scale extensions over the years, a large majority of them work out in the team's favor. And I'd argue too many of them. The teams are too reluctant to take a chance at this point. They're, 
they end up paying for what a player has done rather than what they're going to do over the life of that contract, except for the max guys. And even some of them have already proven they're worthy of a max. But anything less than that, you end up paying for what a guy has done, which is a great value for the team for a guy in his his early 20s. Most of those players get better. So it usually works out. Uh, so I, I think teams should take more risks with rookie-scale extensions. And I think this is a good example of one. They're, and the Raptors have been open about it. They've pretty much said, no, he's not played like an $11 million a year player, but he's still young. He has some talent. You know, he works hard. We think he'll get there. And, and I think that's an okay bet to take. Certainly. And there also is the possibility, depending on how everything goes for Toronto, because they're in a very tough situation because DeMar DeRozan has a player option, which I think everybody thinks he's going to decline, and that makes him an unrestricted free agent. So they're probably sitting there looking, staring in the face of the possibility that not only could they lose a guy who's made an all-star team for them without any compensation, but that would also give Terrence Ross even more leverage in theoretical negotiations, and he would be a, a restricted free agent in a market where there are going to be teams that miss out. So they could be looking at that saying, oh, God, what are we going to do? And then theoretically, if they wanted to, in let's say a quote-unquote best-case scenario, I think that there will be some team out there that would pull what I, what I call it pulling a Drew Holiday because basically that's what the Sixers did with him is, you know, sign a guy to an extension and then you trade them really early on in it because somebody is sitting there going, we're not going to do better than that guy at that contract with this with with the space we have. That's an interesting comparison, especially because I think Drew Holiday was his value was inflated because he made an All Star game, just as Terrence Ross's value is probably inflated because he had that fifty one point game. When you look at the body work, they're both fine players. I'm not trying to knock either one, uh, but I I think one single accomplishment was taken with too much stock. And the same hand with what you're talking about with DeRozan. I would flip it the other way, and I, that's part of the reason I'm not a huge fan of this extension, is that if DeRozan opts out, and I think he will also, uh, you could have a lot of cap space. You could have a chance to really remake your team on the fly. I don't think he would come. You could chase somebody like Kevin Durant, see if the Drake influence gets you anywhere. You know, I don't think you need a high percentage chance of getting Kevin Durant to want to be in the mix. I mean, he he would change the franchise completely, and I understand the the small forward options available in free agency might be slim after that might be an all or nothing thing. But I don't know if I'd want to give up the chance to have cap space to absorb somebody in a trade or, or to do something else just to have the security of having Terrence Ross. You're, you're right. And that's a big part of the reason why I didn't like this extension is I, I what I was kind of, you know, what I was doing there was just kind of saying that part of the argument. And, uh, cause I still think they could trade Ross. Like, I, I think that, I think that that's still a part of this. It was actually something that various people who, who I might do podcasts with think is a silly idea of me talking about how the Warriors could, could have signed Harrison Barnes with the full intention of trading him next summer. But, what the Raptors had before this deal is they had some really compelling flexibility. And you, you talked about the idea of, you know, that they could go in some directions. The other part of that that I think is, is an important piece of the discussion for the Raptors is that Damari Carroll is the three guys they're really committed to. Well, you could add Corey Joseph if you wanted to. The three starters they're committed to are Kyle Lowry, Jonas Valanciunas, which we're going to talk about in a second, and... And Damari Carroll. Damari Carroll can bounce between a few positions. So if what you're looking for is someone to play with those three players, you can go in a lot of different directions. And while it'd be nice to get a single, you know, 
at max level player, because that's always nice. You could do that in a lot of different ways, and basically what you're doing is you're rolling the dice, but you're rolling the dice a lot of different times, and all you need is to, it to come up once, and you're fine. Exactly. So, Jonas Valanciunas, I think this is going to probably parallel the Michael K. Gilchrist thing with a little bit of Terrence Rossler in there that he, he'll he need to be better than he has been to justify this contract, but I have every expectation that he will be. Oh, see, I disagree. I think he's already playing like a, a $16 million a year player in the new cap. Okay, I can see. I just I worry a little bit about his defense. He got helped a lot by having Amir, though Amir didn't have his best year last season. I, but I love his potential. I'm a big fan of Jonas. Oh, yeah. See, that, this is where I think this is how most rookie scale extensions work. You pay him for what he is right now, but he's a young player with a ton of potential, and I agree. I think he's going to way outperform this. I, I don't know why he signed this. Uh, I thought he probably would have gotten the max next summer if he hit restricted free agency. Uh, or at least close to it, but good for the Raptors locking him up on on this deal. And he is young. He's so he's he'll be 24 when he signs when when his extension kicks in. He turns 24 kind of after the regular season next year. So that means you're getting him for the early part of the early part of his prime at the end. It is nice for him that he got a player option on the last year. I think that helps make this more palatable. But yeah, he's a talent. And what I really like about it is he's kind of a plug-and-play center in the sense that you just put him at that spot. He's not perfect, but you say, okay, we're good at center now for the next, well, for, in their case, right now for the next four years. Right, and and part of my faith in his improvement on defense is, is I believe in Dwayne Casey's ability to, to teach defense last year notwithstanding. Uh, I think he has a good coach for him, and I think you know it, his offense is, is very efficient inside, and I, I just think it's all going to go in the right direction for him. And when you get to defense, there there are two big kind of concepts that I think about are the potential pitfalls. So one is the physical limitations. Like, you just can't defend your position. You're too slow. You're too skinny, whatever it is. I don't worry about that with him at all. You know, there, I, there, while there is some potential that for, you know, that, that he, as the league kind of changes a little bit, that he might not be perfect for it, I think, he's, I think he's in a good place physically for that. And then the second component is desire, which you could talk about Ennis Kanter is probably the best example of this. And I don't see that from him. I don't see a guy who's a bad defender because he doesn't care. I see a guy who isn't as good as he could be and will get there with proper mo- proper motivation and coaching because young guys generally aren't aren't great defenders. Like that's not a that's not a big surprise in the league. That's been true forever. And so I think that there's there's all the reason to expect that he will get better on that end. And he's a very efficient offensive player, which is incredibly nice from center. And he makes his free throws, which is incredibly important. I think we're going to see that more in the next two to three years. Yeah, that's an excellent point about his free throws. I might nitpick his his mobility a little bit more than you do. Uh, but I agree. The overall issue is he's young and still learning how to play NBA defense tonight. I think at minimum he'll end up okay at that end enough to to justify having him out there for his offense. But I I agree. I think his physical tools are are good enough for his upside. He could be a pretty good defender. The last extension, which I think I still haven't exactly figured out what I think about it, is John Henson. Four years, forty four million. From from what I can tell, there aren't any option years on it, so it's just you know eleven million a year. Yeah, you know I like this one uh, when we were doing our our mock extension. I. I valued him over the next four years at about sixty million. That's right. Uh, so, so I think if you can lock him in for forty-four, it, it's great. Uh, he's he's an excellent defender. Uh, he fits well in Jason Kidd's scheme. He can he can move out in space in the perimeter. He can he can do some things to protect the rim. Uh, 
I think Greg Monroe's an excellent offensive fit with the Bucks. I think it's been a rough defensive start for him, not surprisingly. And so it's great to have Henson there as you figure this out and figure out what the best combination is. And at this price, as the cap goes up, maybe you can just have both and use them situationally. Yeah, you can use them situationally and also... Henson, I think I trust him more as a center defensively, and Monroe can operate from the high post. You, you would, you could probably speak to this better than I can. Well, I don't love the spacing. We actually just ran into this issue with Greg Monroe. You know, if it's for five to ten minutes a game, especially if you can do it against the other team's backups, where they might not be as adept at max at you know exploiting that, I think it could work. It could work reasonably well. Oh, absolutely, and a lot of that'll be on Antetokounmpo and Jamari Parker uh, expanding their range and becoming more reliable on three pointers. But I, I think that'll happen, and and that'll make it even easier. But even without that, I, I agree it's manageable. And the Bucks, while they just hit bigger on a on a free agent than they have in a while by getting Greg Monroe, I think they're still in the mode where their space is not as valuable as you know other teams, just because it is it is still valuable. Of course, every team's space is valuable, but it's because you're not sitting there saying, oh, they're missing out on Al Horford, let's say, by signing him by signing John Henson to to eleven million a year. Also, the reporting out there is that Henson's contract is front-loaded, which I find fascinating and can, kind of confirms my idea that they weren't anticipating being big spenders next summer. But what that does is that makes it even more palatable long-term, which is huge for them in two ways. One is it the, the Bucks are a team like Utah and a couple others where a lot of their key players are going to be making a lot more money later than they are right now. And secondly, if they decide that they want to move on from him, that you're you're paying him that money now, and that makes his contract even more desirable later on. Oh, absolutely! I think it's huge as a trade asset when you when you look at those types of contracts and and what you can get for him, uh, because because like we were talking about earlier, the further we get from these new TV contracts kicking in, the more valuable any contract signed before they started becomes. Yeah, so if you're sitting there, let's say it's you're sitting there on on July 10th, 26, 2017, and you're saying, "Hey, you know, we have 3 years of John Henson, 3 years of John Henson left at I think it's a little bit less than 30 million at that point just because it's front loaded." That looks like a really good contract, probably. I mean, you never know how it's going to turn out. And so then if the Bucks want to do that, I think they're getting, if they want to move on from him, then they can get an asset for it. And also something that people aren't thinking about with, with this, with Greg Monroe is he signed a two plus one, which means that he could be a free agent in 2017. So they have John Henson now locked up for the, for three years after Monroe could be a free agent. So then if Monroe leaves, you already have your insurance policy under contract. That's a good point. Uh, the one catch I would give uh, with this and the other things we've been talking about is as the cap goes up, a team's desire for a good contract might go down a little bit. Just uh, Some teams are going to have trouble filling their cap space. They're not going to be worried about, well, can we get John Henson for $30 million over three when you can just sign somebody for you know, 45 over three who's comparable uh, because you're not going to have that cap space anyway, and you don't have to give up an asset to sign a free agent where you would probably to get Henson. That's the floor calculus, I think, uh, th- that's there, is that there, it's going to be such a raise so quickly that at a certain point, you're right, teams are going to, teams are just going to be sitting there going, well, there isn't really a functional difference to us, and so they might just, they might do that. So that hurts their leverage, but 
I think that that's offset by the possibility that Monroe leaves again, you know, that he changes cities again. And to have a guy in place who, while he doesn't have the same strengths and weaknesses, can you, they have the hope that he can capably fill that role with another couple of years of development is gigantic for them. Agreed. What player were you the most surprised did not extend? Oh, that's a good question. Most surprised did not extend. Do you have an answer while I'm trying to... I do, and it's the guy that I was sitting there when you and Nate were negotiating and I was saying, come on, guys, come to an agreement with Andre Drummond. I understand why they did it, and I, I hope that they maximize the space, but to me, when you're the Pistons and you have you have the opportunity to lock up your best player, the guy who basically is your franchise for the time being, you just do it. Yeah, I see that, but if he's on board yeah. with not extending, that's a great sign. Like You can't ask for a better signal about his devotion to the team than that that's true but i mean but really uh, so normally an extension you know puts a big puts a big risk on the team for me when a guy is a clear max player that puts the risk that puts the risk kind of the other way and so basically all your you have to just hope on hope that he's going to do it because there's nothing binding on his end so you know but you have match rights so you're not going to lose him but that that's the risk, but at the same time, I I understand it, you know, and I hope they use that ten million. Well, I hope they don't give it to Aaron Baines. <laughs> I I guess to answer, there was nobody who really surprised me who didn't sign. Uh, but if I'm picking somebody, it's probably Tyler Zeller. It seemed to be trending that way. He was, you know, coming off a pretty good year. The Celtics seemed to like him, uh, but I'm not surprised by it. I think they value their flexibility and, you know, want to see what he can do this year. So I, I, there wasn't one non-extension that surprised me. I'll, get, I'll give you one another one. Surprised. Sure. Festus Azili. Here's the reason. Festus is a talented player. I think he's done a pretty strong, strong job in the four games that have happened since um, since the season started, especially with Bogut missing time. But he has been injured so much of his young career, and he's an older guy. I think he's he's either 26 or 27 right now. That, to me, if you can get that money, that basically changes your life, and you can do that when you've been injured as much as he has, I think you have to seriously consider it. And that, that's why I thought it was actually more likely that they were going to get an extension with him than Barnes, because Barnes, it's a lot more sure that he's going to get that money. Somebody's going to fall in love with him. Somebody's going to give him a crazy salary. Festus, you know, if Festus has another, you know, has another lower body injury or something like that, it really hurts his value. And I think he's more dedicated to being a warrior long term than Barnes is and there's a clear spot for him you know what whether he's the repl- heir apparent to Bogut or not there's a spot for him on this team and so I I kind of ex- I expected him to sign at a number that kind of surprised us at first but then would have eventually been like okay that makes sense well the reason I'm not surprised he didn't get one is that I sort of viewed him and Barnes somewhat as a package deal uh, Barnes is obviously the top priority, uh, but if you can't get something worked out with him, maybe the Warriors won't have any cap flexibility either way, but maybe they will. Uh, so I wouldn't want to jeopardize that for Azili once you've decided, you know what, we're not going to find agreeable terms with Barnes. So the number you'd have to extend Azili at, uh, where you'd be comfortable giving up your flexibility, because I think no matter no matter what fair deal, like the minimum amount he might have accepted, I still think was going to be higher than his cap hold. Well, yeah, his cap hold was five million. So right, so you're going to have to give him a pretty low offer to justify raising his cap number once you don't have Barnes locked up. 
So I think once Barnes, once it became clear he wasn't going to sign an extension, I think it became that much harder for for Azili to get one. That's a good point. And, God, I mean, I feel like I've talked about the Durant possibility way too much. But at the same time, like, we don't we don't know what he's going to want. And so I think that if there's a 5% chance he comes, I think that you have to do everything in your power to make sure that 5% is still out there. I think if it's a 1% chance, it's it's the same. I mean, it's it's Kevin Durant, and you're you're already the best team in basketball, and you think you might be able to add Kevin Durant? Yeah, you get you don't give Festus Azealia an extension that might mess that up. Well, in the second part of that, why Festus is different than Harrison Barnes is that because his cap hold is so low, depending on how all the pieces move, they could keep Festus Azealia if they if the Kevin Durant hypothetical happened. I would have it depends on how the numbers work out. There are a lot of moving pieces through that, and we don't know where the cap is going to be. But it would be conceptually possible for them to keep Clay Curry. Draymond Green, add Kevin Durant, and retain Festus Azili, which, while you would probably have a team that's shallow as all get out, that's a starting five. You aren't in a situation where you're, you know, you're completely missing a piece. Like, that team, if they're together at the end of that season, and you can get minimum guys and, you know, use your room exception, that is a team that is deep enough to compete for a championship. Oh, absolutely. And that's and that's a big difference. Like Nate and I have been talking about it, and like I, that's actually one thing that we really disagree on is that I think that if that happens, and I'm not saying it's likely, I'm not saying anything like that. I think the Warriors are a championship contender, maybe even the championship favorite from day one. Oh, I think they're absolutely the favorite. I mean, really, you put Stephen Curry and Kevin Durant on the same team, it's going to be hard to screw it up. Where I don't think you're the the championship favorite, and then you add the fact the Warriors have smart management and they'll they'll make the most of the limited resources after that. Incidentally, the the biggest weakness they would have left would be, depending on how they structure the rest of the roster, unless they went with the lineup, if they could, to destroy all worlds, was they would have trouble defending elite small forwards. But they wouldn't... I mean, if you have a team that is that talented offensively and that has enough aggregate defensive talent, I don't think you have to stress about, oh, we don't have a singular person to guard LeBron James, like you do with the Clippers, who I think the Clippers don't have the surrounding defensive talent to say, oh, we'll we'll just figure it out. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I, unless you have anything else on extensions, there isn't a ton in terms of option years, but there are a couple that are really notable, and I think the one that struck both of us most was, we, we alluded to it before, which is P.J. Hairston. Yeah, I mean, he's he's starting for the Hornets right now, and to decline his very small third-year option caught me off guard. I, I'm not the biggest fan of his. He was pretty awful his, his rookie year. He's had issues off the court. You know, I, I get not really being high on him, but you're also starting him. Either, either you like him a little bit or you don't. Yeah, I, I agree with that, and I think he's a low-floor, moderately high-ceiling guy, but at $1.25 million and having another option year after that, there are very few players who are NBA players, and they're starting the guy right now, that I wouldn't pay that commit that money to right now, especially when they're pre-prime. Right. He, he doesn't have to turn out to justify that. If, if he continues to struggle, you can wave him, you can stretch him. But if he, if he turns out to be a, a reasonable rotation player, you have a great value. And you also give yourself the chance to see him for another year. And if he, you know, it might be a long shot that he progresses this year. But if he does, you get to see him next year and see how he progresses. And you just keep kicking it down the line on potentially good value. How else are you going to use that that $1.25 million? 
And that's the big point here, especially when you're talking about Charlotte. They're not going to be fighting on the margin for that extra. So if you talk about it as the difference between that and a roster hold, you're not going to be fighting for that 600,000. You know, that's not going to be the difference between Kevin Durant signing there or not signing there. And even if it, even if it was, you could move PJ Harrison, no problem. So it's just a, it, to me, it's a poor allocation of resources that you, you know, you, you might as well, it's kind of like if you could get a, a lottery ticket for five cents and there's a really low chance that it pays out $10 million. As long as you have that five cents, you know, you're, you're, the potential benefit is pretty high. Yeah. It- and I I don't know this, but maybe given his off-court problems, I don't know. Maybe this gets back to what we were talking about before. This sort of the opposite of of Terrence Ross, where you know he's not. They're not sure he's a a guy they they want to be around all the time. Uh, but with his talent, supposedly he can shoot from outside. We'll see if that ever comes around. You know, I think it's worth the chance. The other team that's in a pretty similar boat, in my opinion, except that it was on a later option year, is the Pacers with Solomon Hill. Solomon has, he's not starting for them like, like PJ Harrison is, but he was going to make 2.3 million next year, and the Pacers were not expected to be major players in free agency, so while there is a possibility they could do that, I, I thought that was another poor allocation of resources. The one thing that makes a little more sense with Solomon Hill is he's older. Yeah. Uh, and and he's not in the rotation, right? Like they clearly are not the biggest fans of his right now. That that at least is logically consistent. But it also gets back to why are you drafting a guy who's that old for his rookie year and and not far enough along in his development? Yeah, that's a great point. And yeah, so because when you you kind of think about, I mean, ideally you want a guy who's young, good, and has high upside. But when you're outside of that realm. You're either talking about, generally to me, a guy who's young and should get a lot better, P.J. Harrison's kind of more in that camp, or older and is going to contribute right away. And so then what you're dealing with is a guy who's an intense value on his rookie contract because he's already good. The prototype for me with that is Taj Gibson. You know, Taj Gibson was older, but he was already good, so it was fine. And... Solomon Hill wasn't in either of those, but at two at two million, I mean, I, I think that especially with where this league is going, two million can can't get you a whole heck of a lot. Yeah, it's. I guess we'll see how everything develops, and the D League is probably going to change its format, and we'll, we might never get a chance to see. But you see, guys, what did Jimmer get guaranteed from the Spurs just to get him into training camp? Five hundred thousand. I think it was a little less than five hundred thousand. Yeah. Yeah. How different is that going to be in a couple years from Solomon Hill's salary? That, those might be the type of numbers teams give as a guarantee just to entice somebody to get them to come to training camp and, and go to the D-League if they get cut. Yeah, and, and also you can think about what, you know, Perry Jones, well, I think Perry Jones has a higher ceiling than Solomon Hill. I don't think, from what I recall, that the, the Thunder really gave up much for him, and then the, the Celtics just cut him. So they were basically willing to take, take that on, take on that possibility, and the team might have been willing to do that with Solomon next year. Did the Celtics get money in the trade? I think they got a little bit, but I mean, the rules on how much money teams can take in trades is, makes it so that it was, it, I, I know they got money in the Zoran Dragic trade. Like, they basically got, they got his salary paid by Miami. Right. Right. And, you know, yeah. Yeah. No, that's a good point about Perry Jones, uh, that you're paying him for, for probably training camp. Although, yeah, I, I guess the Celtics are too good at acquiring players because they have strong assets, one through 15 and one through 16 until they had to cut Perry Jones. Yeah, but do you want to? Uh, so I'm I'm notoriously low on the Celtics' aggregate assets, but at the same time, I really like their current team, and I'm having trouble reconciling that. 
you might be kind of the opposite of, of everybody. <laughs> that might be true. <laughs> I, I like their current team. Uh, I like their assets. I think an underrated thing about those Brooklyn picks is it's going to be hard for Brooklyn to get good because players aren't going to want to go there for a team that's going to have to trade all their, their picks or send them to Boston or swap them. So it's, it's going to be hard for the Nets to get good also. I don't think they're, they're well run anyway. I'll play the fifth on that, but yeah. I think th- I think those assets are tremendous. The the Nets picks are definitely the best thing. I, I I think that what was harder for me to to talk about was also that things like the Minnesota. So they have this Minnesota pick, which is almost definitely not going to transfer, and so it becomes two second round picks, which is nice. You know, Minnesota's seconds should be fine for the next couple of years. But the other part of this that totally changes it is what what Dallas's first round pick becomes because that. It, I, I would assume it's going to be, you know, so it's top seven protected, so that's a possibility. But for me, it's hard to see a Rick Carlisle team finishing with one of the seven worst records. So it's probably going to be somewhere between 10 and 20, and that's a nice little asset, even if this draft class isn't as good as some people hope. Yeah, that's that's another underrated one. Uh, I don't think, you know, when they made the trade, any of us expected Dallas to be surrendering such a good pick this year. Uh, but that that worked out great for the Celtics. When and they got Rashawn Rondo for it, so it was clearly worth it for them. <laughs> yeah, it's Rick Carlisle about that. I, I really hope that the first Kings Mavericks game in Dallas is on national TV, just because I think I people talked about the DeAndre game. I think that might have more venom in it. Yeah, I could see that. That will be a fun game for sure. Yeah, that'll be a fun one for sure. So, uh, assuming you have the, you have the time is. We've, I think that's pretty much everything. The other guy who got who didn't get his option picked up was Sergey Karasev, but I, I feel like he just wasn't at that level. That was more of the vein of let's say Anthony Bennett, which had already happened. What, one of the things that was different about this is so because so many players in this in this in the 2012 draft class, which is the class we're talking about, their fate had already been sealed because players like Thomas Robinson and Austin Rivers had already had option years declined or they had been cut outright. Yeah, you wonder how much teams regret that. Uh... Because those were done before they knew the cap was going to explode. You know, maybe Thomas Robinson, Austin Rivers, Kendall Marshall, uh, even Jared Cunningham, who's playing all right for Cleveland. Yeah, maybe they didn't seem quite worth it at the time. But with the cap going up and up, you know, I think I'd rather have those guys on those those rookie scale, scale deals still. Yeah, especially when you think about, you know, like what you could use your money for and, and the fact that they're – it's just they're going to be so relatively cheap, and one of the dynamics that's going on going to be going on in the league for the next couple of years is the rookie scale isn't going to change until the next CBA, and so those contracts are just going to become bargains. And so why not take a take a risk on a guy like that because the the downside is so is so minimal when when the con- when the contracts are going as high as they are. I think it was Brian Windhorst who wrote about this recently, but there's going to be more and more dead money on the books because it just doesn't matter. Well, there's going there's so going to be high and it's worth the chance. There's going to be more and more dead money, but it's going to be way less relative to the cap than than yes. it was before. It's so like there was the the team that I always thought about without was Orlando. I think it was last year. Orlando just had a ton of dead money on their cap and you know, it didn't really affect them a whole heck of a lot because they've had trouble wooing free agents though. They were played a factor in Paul Millsap this past summer. But and I mean the Sixers are the Sixers are basically all dead money right now, which is glorious and and incredible and something people don't talk about enough. But yeah, he's right that I think what's going to happen is teams are going to be more willing to have some, and so you're just going to have that. Like, you know, I, I think you and I both have Excel sheets with you know kind of where teams' books are. Is that you're going to have to keep a couple of lines clear of just you know dead money, whether that be 
a full like a contract kind of like more what Perry Jones was or what um, Mike Miller was for the for the Blazers or I think what you talked about before of just like giving a bunch of different guys between 50 and $200,000 just to come into camp and just saying like oh whatever you know that 2 million dollars that's worth it for us to get to find the best guy out of 5 right and well I think the big game changer is going to be when there are 30 D league teams and your affiliate, you have the rights to all those players. So then D-League player salaries can go up, and we'll have to figure out whether that's a separate salary cap or whether that uh, relates to the NBA salary cap. Um, that might be a way to, to clear out some of that dead money or at least make it less desirable to have a portion on your books. That's a great point. And one of the dynamics with that, they're going to have to figure out, one of the big things they're going to have to figure out is that. And also, do they want to change the number of roster spots? I, I'm person, Personally, I think that they should. I think they should expand it. Maybe not the active. I think the active is at a pretty fair number right now. But, you know, if they expanded it and kept the cap at a, at a you know, a similar number, I think that could help some teams. Or do what I proposed in NBA Utopia, which is teams under the cap could use could use more roster spots, but most teams over the cap are still limited. Well, that's an interesting uh, idea. I'm just going to make one up as I go. Uh, but what if the roster was, let's say, uh, 24 deep? Uh, you could have 12 active. Or I guess we're up to 13 active now, so maybe you do 25 or, or 26 or whatever the exact number is. Uh, you can have 12 active and everybody else is. Uh, there's really no distinction between inactive or assigned to your D-League affiliate. Uh, so you have one salary cap for everybody. Um but you can you can just have free to interchange between your parent club and the D League affiliate, and it's all one roster pool. That's an idea too. It's definitely interesting. Uh, one thing that I'm not super comfortable with, especially if the D League salaries are going to be low, I think they're going to be raised. That's going to be a part of this. Is if it's going to be that tight a relationship, I actually think it's a lot more fun to have the D League only have a few players that are protected and just kind of have it because then the players get more opportunity. Something that I just generally hate is when teams monopolize the rights on a player, whether that be an international player who then can only negotiate with one team, like Louis Scola, let's say, for example, like when he was trying to come over, though his rights eventually got traded. I just, I'm not super comfortable with that. Well, I could go on a whole rant about how players let teams do that to them. I mean, how many second-round picks declined the required tender this year? I think it was a mistake for practically all of them, except for the guys maybe who are international and were already under contract they couldn't get out of. Like, J.P. Uh, JP Tokido should be a trendsetter here. Yeah, there were rumblings. Maybe he promised the 76ers he wouldn't decline it, or that he would decline it to get drafted. But that was the mistake in the first place. Uh so I, you know, maybe he shouldn't have gone back on his word if that's what he said, and who knows exactly how it was phrased from each side. Uh, but yeah, I, I think any of them who decline it, it's a mistake. You're, you're being stuck negotiating with one team for the next year. Uh, Pierre Jackson ran into that when he was blowing up in the D League and he had declined it. And, uh, New Orleans had his rights then, I think. Yes. Uh, and, and the, Pel and they didn't want to bring him up. Uh, and so he couldn't do anything about it. Whereas if he had accepted the required tender, he'd either be, would have been in the NBA making an NBA salary, you know, several times higher than D League salary, or they would have waived him after training camp. He would have gone to the D League the same way, and any team could have signed him. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that that, that, and, and it, it, 
it gets the best players in the league. As crazy as it sounds, I think that's that's an important part of this. Is you know you want to make sure that the the best talent around the world has that opportunity. And you know, and it's a little bit different to me in the cases of let's say like a European guy like Dario Saric. Dario Saric signed a contract that didn't allow him to come over. So as much as he claims that he wanted to come over last year, well, then you, maybe you shouldn't have signed the contract you did. But other than that. Like I, I really am much more comfortable with it being the player's choice, and that's also why I support you know kind of changing the draft process. But that's a different conversation unless you want to have it now. In which case, I'm always willing to talk about that. Uh, sure. Well, before we do that, let me go back to the beginning of what led us down this rabbit hole. I was talking about the D League, and and you were saying you you didn't want all the players' rights held by an NBA team, right? Uh, and I think there's a point to that. Uh, the, the reason I I support that is I think that would generate so much more interest in the D League. I don't think I think a big reason NBA fans don't watch the D League is because except for the occasional assigned player, these are almost all guys who, you know, you don't really have a rooting interest in. You know, Pistons fans don't care about the Grand Rapids drive. Cavaliers fans don't care about the Canada Charge. Those aren't necessarily players who are being groomed for the team you support. They're just guys who happen to play for a D-League team that your NBA team gives money. Uh, but if those players' rights were exclusively held by your team, I think there would be a lot more interest. And I also think, going back to, to what you want to say about the draft, the the big step with that would be lengthening the draft, adding rounds, and fans would be interested in these guys from a, a very young age, from when they're drafted, and they would follow their development. They'd pay more attention to the D-League, and I, I think it would create more revenue for the league, and some of that would go to those players in the D-League, even if they wouldn't have as much flexibility. Yeah, I mean, the the wages would have to be competitive because, you know, the the players in a theoretical, even the second round, but really the third round, if it, if it happens, they'd be, those players would be valued at a reasonable level in Europe, and so they would be, they'd have to have wages that would be competitive. And I know they want to play in the U.S. I think that there is something to it. My personal feeling has always been that if the U.S. were to have the second best league in the world, which I think is totally possible given the amount of players who want to play here, I feel like that league would not be affiliated with the NBA. It would be a it would be a league that understood that it is second best, but always all, and worked within that, but didn't have the team framework. And the other big part of that, which I think is actually a flaw with with the D League right now, is they've done a a very they've been very specific about in most circumstances of making it be like it's a minor league thing like they're in different cities it's in places that are kind of close but not necessarily close enough and i think that working within the framework of maybe even having less games but having them be closer to the teams because like if you're if the team i'll use because they're the closest to me is the warriors are in santa cruz like yes santa cruz is close to the bay area and it's especially close to the south bay but like for where i am if i wanted to go to a game there that's you know two and a half three hours each way i'm gonna spin it the other direction if you're in santa cruz and you're a warriors fan this is gonna be your connection this is gonna be your gateway you're going to go to a cheap D-League game. You're going to enjoy yourself. You're going to be more hooked on the Warriors. You're going to be more hooked on basketball. And then a few times a year, you're going to make the trek uh, to Oakland or eventually San Francisco to go to Warriors games and, and pay those ticket prices. Yeah, I, I think I think there's definitely something to that. But that's why I think the D-League should be the third best league in the U.S. I think, that, I think there should be a second league, which is like the best players that aren't. And then you have a third league, which is more the developmental league, which is actually, for me, what the D-League stands for and what it should be. So you have guys. So then what you do is you have really raw guys, like let's say the James Youngs of the world or the 
first-year DeAndre Jordans of the world or Fab Bello or whoever. You have those guys in the D-League, but then you have the... I'm trying to think of a good example of this. Like, Reggie Williams or Jonathan Simmons, if he's not in the NBA. Why am I thinking of only Spurs guys? But, you know, players like that, that you have a second-best league in the in the world, in the U.S., that is players like that that are trying to get their way in the NBA but aren't encumbered by their rights being held. Who's going to pay to, to watch that over the D-League where, you know, people are fans of NBA teams. That's why I think that's going to be the big calling card for the D-League is when you have a closer connection as a fan with the players in it. So I, I don't know who's going to watch that second-tier league, even if the basketball quality is higher, over the, the third-tier D-League where players have that close connection to your team. Well, the reasoning is because you because you take a lot of the players from college basketball, and so there's just enough talent that it's worth it. And I think that that would be the way to do it. But the problem, of course, if you have a second league, is that the where where the sites are is important. And also, the second league could be a lot less teams. You know, it could be 15 teams or 14 teams, and you just make the quality level high enough. You put it in sufficient markets, and then like I mean, for as an example, like I'm a big basketball fan. If the right ACB games were on, I would watch them all the time. You know, like, that's just the way that I am. I wouldn't necessarily get the gate. I don't think it would be a gate revenue-based sport. I think it would be about selling the rights to somebody. And there are a lot of networks that are not included in the NBA TV deal that are looking for sports content during the week, during the winter. Yeah, I just I just think it would be too hard for another league to compete with the D-League, especially the direction where it's going. If, if the D-League says, we're going to make every player on an affiliate have their rights held by the NBA parent club, Parent clubs are going to value those players more. They're going to get paid more to a degree where I don't think an outside the NBA affiliation, I don't think another league is going to be able to compete with those salaries. There's certainly logic to that. Uh, but, but so, yeah, so the other, do you want to talk about the draft or do you want to leave that for another time? Oh, let's do it. So for me, the the way that you resolve this is so there there are two different things that are that are issues with the draft. One is the artificial artificially lowered wages and then the second is the lack of choice. And so for me, while it would be more fair to have it where there was not the artificially lowered wages, I think that it is just impractical to argue uh, to argue that that won't happen just because of the nature of collective bargaining and tragedy of the commons you can throw a bunch of things out there for why this can happen. So for me, so then, if you're going to artificially lower wages for guys, then what you should do is you should open up choice. And the way you do that, in my opinion, and Amin Al-Hassan has another idea that's that's similar. There are a couple people, I'm not saying I'm treading new water here, is that what you do is you give allotments of money that play, that teams can use for players that are new to the league. And you could make it with eligibility if you wanted to, like, you know, like a player who's over a certain age, then they just go in the general pool. And I would make those, I would make that, so you get a pool based on each quote-unquote draft pick. Those pots are both tradable and combinable. So what that means is if the Celtics have, or the Sixers are actually probably the best example of this. So the Sixers, you know, if they're getting the Knicks, if they're getting the the Lakers pick and they're getting that pick, what that means is they're getting an allotment of money and they can use that however they want and then what the other component that I would do is at a certain level then you the, the contracts have a have a requisite form so like whether it's the 2 plus 2 like they have now or 2 plus 1 plus 1 actually and then otherwise and so it all goes into one pool and that also means that there would be no held rights in terms of non NBA players it's an interesting idea i think there's a lot of merit to that 
One drawback I'm, I'm thinking of immediately, and I don't know how big this is. The draft is a big deal. A lot of people watch it. It's, you know, I think it makes money for the league. How much, uh, how much revenue are you losing eliminating it? But are you, are you losing that much revenue? But you think about how much le- how much money the league generates in terms of interest, or in terms, <laughs> though it's not money that they recoup mostly, the interest that gets generated in July 1st to me is, is really high too. You know, so depending on how you administer it, and that's actually one of the more intellectually interesting parts of this, and Amin and I had talked about this before we, you know, we chatted things out of there, is I would, the, I would run the rookie pool as a completely separate thing. Basically, you run it as a cap exception, which is functionally what rookies are now. So the ability of that is that you could theoretically do it before, during, or after veteran free agency. And you could talk about the merits of each of those. I I think it's most interesting to do it before. Just be, you know, so like you take that time and you and you run with that. But if you wanted to do it during or you wanted to do it after, the logic, I mean, I think the NFL has moved around their draft time a couple times. For veteran players, it's far better to have the draft after because then you, you know what your needs are. And I think in some ways you can make an argument that that's more fair to players, to rookies, because then they go in knowing what the team is committed to. So... Just a thought, if you're saying it's a set salary structure and it's more about the amounts or a set contract structure, uh, what would you think of the idea of making it maybe maybe even something televised and whether uh, it's a silent or live, but a, a bidding process where the player has to go to the team that's willing to pay him the most? Well, I, I think that's I think that's a, a different thing. But for me, the moral the moral imperative, if you want to call it that, which seems a little bit strong and preachy. But if you're not going to give the play, the rookies, I'm calling them rookies in the sense the non NBA players coming in a lower rate than they're than they're comfortable with. I think you have to give them full freedom of choice. I think that's what you do. And so then, if a, if a player wants to take a million less a year to play it on a team that's either going to give them time or not going to screw up their development or whatever. I think that if you're if you're dealing in that world and you're dealing with that reality, which I think is is really fait accompli at this point, you know that's something that's going to happen. So for me, if you're in that world, then you might as well give the players the choice. But I think there's a lot of interest in that too. Uh yes. I as an aside, I do th- think there's nothing more anti-labor and celebrated by labor than the draft. Agree. Uh, so it, it's a weird situation where I don't think the players hate the draft like it's thrilling for them to be drafted even though it completely screws them uh <laughs> that's true but also i think they've treated it as a part of life which i sure. think i think is an unnecessary assumption i i guess one drawback i would see potentially is that if the i mean the difference between what we have now allotted for the first you know, the number one pick and you know the number six pick relative to how much NBA contracts can vary is not huge. So would players too often not go to small markets to go to big markets for less money? And the way to combat that is maybe you have to raise the total pool so there's a a bigger marginal difference, but then maybe rookies are getting paid too much. And that that goes back to why we have the rookie skill in the first place. Yeah, Yeah, I think that that is definitely a concern, but at the same point, it's so far away that, you know, like, so, for example, would Carl Towns have chosen the Lakers over the Wolves? Probably. You know, I I, I, th- I think that that would have been a very real possibility just because you lock that in and because of the way that you get bird rights afterwards and that's a team that presumably will be willing to spend. I definitely think that's a possibility. 
But at a certain point, I think you just kind of have to understand that that's a part of it. And if you give players that, if you give, the, if you structure some of the other parts of it, you know, with extensions and everything else, in ways that can be favorable for small market teams. And it's not like the Lakers, the Lakers had that opportunity now, you know, like they, they chose, they chose, they chose D'Angelo Russell, you know, like D'Angelo Russell, hopefully he turns out great. You know, we're, what we're not used to is small market teams. I mean, big market teams actually having high draft picks. You know, the assumption was always that they weren't going to be in that mix. And so I think that once those teams get better, which will probably happen eventually with or without draft reform, then you start to get into where the money really matters. Because, you know, like if it's, you're choosing between 1 million with the Lakers, let's say, let's say they have a, the top, oh, like in the, in the bottom 10 picks, pick pool equivalent, that's very different than like 3 million or something like that, that a team like, let's say the, um, the Sixers are offering. You think that's very different? I think that's notable. I mean, that's, that, that's, and you would also have to get into the big part of this that I've never fully resolved is how you handle the years on the contract and bird rights and things like that. Like if, what, what really scares you is if you, if you loosen that up and so then the Lakers start doing stuff like, I, I use the Lakers even though it could just be the Knicks or whoever else is like, hey, we'll give you a million a year for three years and you know what you get at three years? You get full bird rights. Like, that's when you start to get, that's why you might want to do uniform format for the contracts, is because otherwise, if I'm the Lakers, if they, if, if they change that format, then, and they made me the GM, I would just be giving out three-year contracts to everybody. Well, as a, as an interesting aside, I, I think it was Nate Duncan who brought this up to me, that, uh, it's hard to find something in the collective bargain agreement right now, where you couldn't renegotiate the fourth year of a, of a rookie scale contract. Mm-hmm. So if, it, if an agent got, you know, real feisty and started demanding that, especially as teams have cap room, I guess it just comes to you. So you talk about the moral imperative, and I just don't think that matters to anybody who's making these decisions. It matters, you know, it matters to me a little bit. It obviously matters to you. And But, but the way this works is people in the league are the ones who vote from the player side on the collective bargaining agreement, and... They're already through this process, so they don't necessarily want to have some of this total pot allocated to, allocated to young players who aren't in the league yet. And the owners clearly don't want to do anything that really expands the, the rights of, of players and ability of players to collect more money. So it's, it's hard to see who would be in favor of this, who actually has a stake in it. But I do think it's a really interesting idea and maybe something that would be, good from the league from an outside perspective as far as making things more interesting, more fair. Yeah, and I, I agree with you. I think that the point the point of all this that I would that I would levy into something you just said is it's unrealistic. I've always said that. You know, the draft reform like I want to do, it's never gonna happen. But I still think it's worth having the having the conversation because I think that while it's unlikely to affect it, you know, even if it's a, we talked about this with Kevin Durant, even if it's like a 1% chance, because for me, having those big conversations and having them enough, you know, maybe it gets to the right ears and maybe it happens. But I agree with you, it's completely unrealistic. Well, more realistic is it moves what's realistic in the direction yeah. toward this. Where, where yes, this might be too far-fetched, but something similar, maybe not even similar, but at least closer to this end of the spectrum when they're looking at solutions. Yeah, that, that's definitely a possibility. Uh, anything else you want to discuss? Uh, not unless you do. 
Oh yeah, I I think I think we're good. I, I'm definitely happy we had this draft discussion. I think that it's it's good, and it's always good to get a reality check. I I I probably don't say enough that while I f- have support all these radical things, I know they're never going to happen. You know, it's not it's not from a la- from a lack of realism. It's just a desire to have the conversation. Oh yeah, no, it's definitely interesting. It's an interesting idea. I and, don't fully know what I think of it. And but. and the D League part of it is a very realistic discussion because that's something that's going to happen in the next year and a half. Like that's a discussion that ha- they have to figure out what they want from the D-League and then figure out where it, where it can happen because you have to think about it not only in terms of what you want the structure to be, but having the payments at the right level so that the players will actually treat it the way you want them to treat it. Yes. Well, thank you so much for taking time. Always a pleasure to talk with you. Yeah, well, a lot of fun. Anytime. Thanks again to Dan Feldman for taking the time to come on. You can read him at NBC's Pro Basketball Talk, which is probasketballtalk.nbcsports.com. You can also follow him on Twitter. You definitely should. At Dan Feldman NBA. That's D-A-N-F-E-L-D-M-A-N-N-B-A. I really liked having this conversation, and part of the reason why I had actually talked with him about a month ago about doing this is that I think it's a little bit too early in the season to do anything big on what's already happened. I think that we we a week in we tend to over overreact and while I try to temper that with saying oh we're only a week in all this stuff I I feel that if you think about it as a time capsule thing those ones generally don't age very well and so with a weekly podcast we don't have the pressure to do that so I didn't and uh, I appreciate all of you for taking time to listen as always I I read all your feedback you can hit me up on Twitter at Danny Larue D A N N Y L E R O U X you can also email me at NBA at gmail.com. It is an email address that I have set up basically for things like this. So if it's something that's too long for a tweet or you want to keep private, you can do it that way too. I really do appreciate that. And it is your feedback that helps make the show better. And as I say periodically, I do appreciate your ideas for guests. But more importantly than you telling me, because odds are I'm, I'm aware of them, is making sure that they're aware of this. And so that means if you want to shoot them a tweet or an email and say, hey, you should come on that show, because odds are if it's somebody that you think is good enough to come on, I've either approached them or wanted to. And so, you know, it just helps get the momentum going. It At this point, fortunately, between this and Dunked On, there are very few people who say no. Usually it's, you know, they're busy and we delay it and things like that. But I'm going to try to go in some different directions. I love having this format to be able to, to take a step back and think about it a little bit and It's something that I genuinely enjoy doing and will do as long as they let me. So thank you so much for listening. Oh, actually, one more thing before I let go. I have a Facebook page. It is uh, Facebook. I think it's Facebook slash Danny LaRue MBA. Either way, it's Danny LaRue MBA is the piece there. And that collects everything. So I, I do writing for the Sporting News, for Real GM, for, you know, for other outlets. I'm the lead writer at Warriors World, for those of you who want to read my Warriors work. And... I put everything I do there, including podcasts, this one, the one I do with Nate Duncan, whenever I'm a guest on somebody else's podcast. And so if you want it at all in one place, you can, you can like that on Facebook. It's a more convenient way. And also I do a weekly email list, and the link to that is frequently on my Twitter profile, and it's also on my Facebook page every week. I put it up. I try to make that go out every Thursday. Sometimes it's Friday, just depending on timing and when I have pieces that are released, because I try to make it topical. So if I have something coming out on a Friday, I'll probably wait. But... Thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.
When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can seem intense. Like breakup R&B intense. I thought you said you loved the sweater that I got you. If you didn't, you could have told me. Geico makes it easy. Just go to Geico.com anytime to update or check your policy without all the extra drama. I even had a gift receipt. Run to Old Navy for revolutionary prices on summer's most stylish shorts. Tomorrow only, they're all 50% off for the whole family. All your favorite shorts, denim, linen, all of them. All shorts are 50% off tomorrow only. Run to Old Navy. Valid 630 excludes active.